Hello Saints, Todd here with SafeguardYourSoul.com. Thank you so much for tuning in. We are so blessed to have these moments together in the Word of God. And remember, Saints, there's nothing, there's nothing, no thing happening on God's planet that is even remotely as important as the work of the gospel and feeding the sheep of Jesus Christ for whom he died to save so that they can grow in grace, they can be edified, they can be equipped for the work of the ministry according to the scriptures. And let me just guarantee you this one thing, by the grace of God, this outreach will continue to unapologetically endeavor to preach the whole of the word of God, regardless of who gets offended or not in Jesus name. And please remember that your prayers and support are vital to this operation. Thank you. We're going to talk about the righteousness of God. I love what Daniel prayed in Daniel 9.18. Tell me when you get there. Let's read Daniel 9.18. Oh, my God. Incline thine ear, and hear, open thine eyes, and behold our desolations, and the city which is called by thy name. For we do not present our supplications before thee for our righteousness, but for thy great mercies. I love that. For we do not present our supplications before thee for our righteousness, but for thy great mercies. You know, anybody that learns to walk with God in the biblical way, which is the only way, is going to learn that Jesus Christ is our righteousness. He's been made unto us righteousness. It says in the book of Corinthians, which we'll look at in a minute, Jesus Christ is our righteousness. Second Corinthians 5.21, we're going to stay here in this verse, but I'm going to quote that one. It says, God made him to be sin for us who knew no sin. Why? That we might be made the righteousness of God in him, in Jesus Christ. So Daniel says here, oh my God, as he prays, Daniel prayed morning, noon, and night, didn't he? He had a disciplined prayer life. If you read through the book of Daniel, you'll find it says repeatedly that Daniel continually sought the Lord. It keeps on saying that. They found Daniel praying as a sample, 6.11. He served God continually, 6.20. Daniel was one who fervently sought the Lord. He served God continually. Let me tell you, if you're not serving God daily and taking up your cross and walking with him, it's because you don't know him and you're not really serving him. Why do I say that? How could I dare say that? Well, Jesus said that if you're going to walk with him, you got to do what? Deny yourself, take up your cross and follow him daily, daily. Oh my God, he said, 918, Daniel, as he prays, incline thine ear. And here, open thine eyes and behold our desolations. Again, Daniel, before I move on from that topic about serving God continually and how Daniel prayed, I think it was three times daily, just like the psalmist. If you find that verse, let me know. Where Daniel sought the Lord, even when they outlawed him praying, he sought the Lord because he feared God rather than men. Acts 529. David said, morning, noon and night will I pray and cry aloud. Morning, noon and night. David said, sought the Lord. Now, what do these two men have in common among many others in biblical history that we can cite, including our Lord who rose up a great while before day and went into a solitary place and there prayed, Mark 135. You see a consistency throughout the lives of those men of God we see in scripture. Perhaps some didn't make it in scripture that didn't adapt these biblical principles. The Bible talks, for instance, about early morning prayer. We're told somebody has calculated 63 times. Now we see it all over the Bible. Psalm chapter 
5, verse 3. Early will I seek thee, David said. Also, again, Jesus rose up a great while before day and there prayed. These men had a disciplined life of prayer. There's something about fixing your life, knowing and fearing and obeying God, choosing that if you wake up tomorrow, the first thing you're going to do is you're going to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these other things will be added to you. Now, did Jesus say seek second, third, or fourth, or first? First. Think about the word first. Is God first in our lives? And if God is first, then we prioritize him. We don't get around to it, you know? They talk about getting around to it. I might get around to praying. I might get around to reading the Bible. I might get around to giving to the Lord. Guess what? How many people know that never happens? Almost never. I mean, how many times have you tried to say, well, I'll just, I don't like to pray in the morning. I'll pray at night. And then it never happened. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Why? Because things get away from you. The flesh takes over. The enemy gets in the way. And the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches and the lust of other things begin to consume you. There's something about putting God first. First fruit offering is taught throughout all the scripture. And that's not just money and things. That's your life, your time. Jesus said, could you not tarry with me? In other words, pray. So I'm a prayer to his disciples one hour. Can you not even pray with me one hour? There are 24 hours in a day. Can you not give me one? Now you can combine the word, studying the word and prayer together. I believe in that. And we're not trying to get legalistic, but if I've got all these hours to spend wasting on the internet or wasting on playing games or wasting on watching videos or anything else in this life and don't have time to spend with God, what's wrong with that? Anybody see a a bad picture there? I testified to a brother today at a smoke shop. I shared the gospel with him. And as I was reading on the gospels this week, Jesus refers to this generation as a, a wicked and adulterous, referring to us being falling into sin after Adam and Eve, that we've fallen away from our first love, and that's Jesus Christ. That shows all throughout the gospel, Jesus calls us wicked and adulterous, and he says even in Revelation to the church of Ephesus that they've, they fell away from their first love. Just pray that we seek Jesus first and his kingdom and his righteousness and all things will be added to us. Jesus said, speaking of the return of Christ, which I know is going to permeate our message tonight as it permeates scripture. He said, watch and pray so that you will not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. How many people know that temptation rolls out that red carpet every day to invite you to enter in, right? Invite you to step onto it. It rolls itself out. Say, come on, Aaron. Come on, Anson. Come on. Step on this rug. Come on, man. We can have fun. Just get on this red carpet. You know, it presents itself to you every day. But if we watch and pray, not only sin from without, but sin from within. But if we watch and pray, Jesus said that we won't enter into that temptation that presents itself. I wrote this down this week. If I am not dominating sin in my own personal life, that begins in the inner thought life at the heart, right? If I am not dominating sin in my own personal life, it can only be because or due to a lack of what? Watching and praying. If I'm not watching and praying, I'm not ready for the Lord's return. If I say I'm ready or I think that I'm ready for the return of Christ and I don't have a life of watching and prayer, I'm a total deceived person and I'm actually calling the Lord Jesus Christ a liar. Because he said that you've got to watch and pray to be ready. Didn't he say that over and over? Matthew 24, 25. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Jesus told us that we've got to watch and pray if we're going to be ready for his return. So if I'm not watching and praying, then I am not ready for the return of Christ. So Daniel 9, 18, he says, Oh my God, incline thine ear and hear, open thine eyes, he requests of the Father to open his eyes, and behold our desolations. And the city which is called by thy name. 
and the city which is called by thy name. For we do not present our supplications. What's a supplication? It's a humble request. Before thee, for our righteousnesses, but for thy great mercies. For we do not present our supplications before thee, for our righteousness, but for thy great mercies. So he approached God, announcing that he has no righteousness, him and the people of God. But God's the only one that can make them righteous and clothe us in his righteousness, right? Their unrighteousness and that their righteousness is, is what? Filthy rags, right? Isaiah 64, 6. But he approached God on the basis of his what? Great mercies. Aren't you glad for the great mercies of the Lord? In fact, don't we read in Titus 3, 5, and 6, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, right? But according to his mercy, he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost, which he shed on us abundantly through our Lord Jesus Christ. Titus 3, verse 5 through 7. Highly recommend you memorize that passage and find yourself often quoting it. It reminds your heart when you meditate on it, you speak it out loud prayerfully that your righteousness comes only from God, not from ourselves. I think it's endemic of human beings to somehow think that because they didn't do some big sin in the last so many days or whatever, that somehow they are actually earning their own righteousness. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? And that's why it's incredibly important to continually be reminded, Brother Anson, that we don't have any righteousness outside of the righteousness of God, who is Christ Jesus, the person. Now, remember, the Father spoke often in the Gospels. We have on many occasions him saying, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. He never said that about anybody else but the Son of God, our Lord Jesus Christ, the eternal work. So where does that leave us? Well, if we're in him, as the Bible speaks so often, using that term, in Christ, in him, then we are the righteousness of God, and God is well pleased with us and in us because we're in Christ. 1 Corinthians one thirty. He says, but of him, meaning God, are ye, meaning all of us, in Christ Jesus, meaning we are in Christ Jesus because of God, who of God is made unto us, meaning he's given us Jesus Christ in us, the hope of glory. He's made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that according as is written, he that glorieth let him glory in the Lord. Hallelujah. Verse 29 of 1 Corinthians 1, 20, chapter 1, that no flesh should glory in his presence. How many things? About three or four, right? Right. He's been made wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption unto us. Jesus Christ has been made righteousness, wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. Praise God. It says, and behold, our desolations. It's a primitive root to stun or transitively grow numb, that is, devastate or figuratively stupefy. Both usually in a passive sense, make amaze, be an astonished unto, lay, lie, make desolate, be destitute, destroy, lay, make waste. Wonder How many people have ever felt desolation in their own life? They haven't had the victory, in other words. Stupefied sin and guilt and guilt and shame and and keeping us out of the word and just many other things the enemy does. And that's a place of desolation. A place of desolation, devastation. And he wants to make us passive and and stupefy us in many ways, getting caught up in worldly things, you know. That's what Satan wants to do, you're right. He wants us at ease in Zion. He wants us lukewarm. We'll be spewed out of the mouth of Jesus into the bowels of eternal damnation. We'll into those that are at ease in Zion, Amos 6.1. That's why the lie of lasciviousness is being taught. 
God calls us to be fervent, vigilant, sober, ready for his return. And once saved, always saved. The doctrines of Calvinism, as we know it today, Reformed theology, does anything but instill the fear of God. All it does is rob the fear of God out of our hearts. So notice, for we do not present, I love this, our supplications. We don't come to you, Lord, because of our righteousness or our righteousnesses. Why? Because there is filthy rags, right? Isaiah 64, 6. But for thy great mercies. How many people know that lamentation? Three says, His compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is his faithfulness. And he also talks about his great mercies in that passage, too. So we do not present our supplications before thee for our righteousness, but for thy great mercies. Now, whenever we lose track of this, it's because our hearts have grown calloused and hardened and cold, whether we realize it or not. And many times this can be in the midst of going through a lot of religious activity, you know, having a form of godliness. How many people have been there other than me? Where my heart began to think that I'm doing all these things right, so somehow I'm riding on my own righteousness. Remember the Galatian church? Galatians 3.3. So, what happened to the Galatians? Paul said, who's bewitched you? They were caught up in witchcraft. You've begun in the spirit and now, he said, now you think you're made perfect in the flesh. And what does the Bible say? Now faith is, right, right now. And Hebrews 11, 1 and 6, without faith is impossible to please him. So though I've walked with God for how many years or decades or whatever, any of us, and yet now we're not walking by faith in Christ. Something wrong with that? Yeah, because without faith, it's impossible to please him. God requires you to have faith. God requires me to have faith. So we're held accountable for the faith that he's given. And if he gives it to us, we're either receiving it and walking in it or we're rejecting it. We walk by faith and not by sight. As Romans says, the just shall live by faith. If we are just, that means we're made right in God's sight because he's given us his son's righteousness imputed unto us. And we are made right in his sight and we live by faith because we're just. It doesn't say they just once live by faith, but the just shall live by faith. They do it all the time. Now, I'm going to read. We're still in the ninth chapter of Daniel. I'm going to read Psalm 5, 7. Psalm 5, 7 says, But as for me, I will come unto thy house in the multitude of... Y'all might want to turn over there. This is good. 5, 7. This is beautiful. The psalmist says, as he's talking of approaching God, how do we approach God? What kind of heart do we have toward the Lord? Are we hungering and thirsting after his righteousness? The first thing Jesus said in a message that spans three chapters in Matthew, the Sermon on the Mount, we call it. The first words out of his mouth to the multitudes, not only his own disciples, but people that weren't of his yet. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's essential. That's kind of like the law of first mention, it's called in biblical interpretation. It's the foundation, if you will. Jesus is the foundation, but it's a foundational instruction without which none of the rest of it matters. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of hell. What does that mean? In the Greek, that means spiritually impoverished. Spiritually impoverished. It doesn't matter how much money you have or how long you've walked with God. And even if you truly have, at the present moment, God wants you and God wants me to be spiritually impoverished. Realizing and announcing and divulging and communing with the truth that he is our righteousness. We have no righteousness of our own to lay claim to. What hast thou that thou hast not received, right? 1 Corinthians 4, 7. What hast thou? Every good gift and every perfect gift is, comes from God, right? The Father of lights, with whom is no variableness nor neither shadow of turning. James 1, 17. We read right here in Psalm 5, 7. But as for me, I will come, the, the psalmist says, unto or into thy house or before your presence in the multitude. How did they David approached God. Exactly. 
as a little child. In the multitude of whose mercies? God's mercy. God's mercies, yeah. And in thy fear. Look at that balance, huh? So he approached God based on, number one, the multitude of thy mercies. We read in Psalm 32, I believe it is, as Anson was quoting, Romans 4, about the sure mercies of David. How many people are glad for the blood of Christ, who was the in the genealogy of David, a type of Christ, that we have the sure mercies, not only of David, if you will, but of Christ. That's what that is. The sure mercies of David are in Christ for us. So, but as for me, I will come into thy house in the multitude of thy mercy and in thy fear will I worship toward thy holy temple. Lead me. O Lord, verse 8, in thy righteousness, because of mine enemies, make thy way straight before my face. Don't you know God blesses us to have enemies? How many people know that enemies will keep you before God? They'll keep you pinned up in that secret place of the Most High. He that dwelleth in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. There's a secret place with God, and no one's going to find it unless they set apart time and affections from their heart and with all their might seek God. You're not going to accidentally enter into that secret place. You're not accidentally going to be ready for Christ's return. You're not accidentally going to walk with God. Every true man of God, as we see throughout Scripture, as we're seeing in the Scripture, David, as we saw Daniel, sought God continually, had a disciplined prayer life. Somebody said, man, half the battle is showing up. Notice what he said in verse 3 here in Psalm 5. My voice shalt thou hear in the morning, O Lord. When did he say that God was in the morning? That sounds like first fruits giving, right? You give your life to Jesus first. Brother Mark out of Atlanta, I'm not going to mention his last name. He might beat me up because he doesn't want any attention on him. Why I think he's such a precious brother. But he said that he has taken the route of a man of God, who I can't remember, of old, who said he never got out of bed without praying and seeking and finding God before he ever put his feet on the floor. Hallelujah. The Bible says, now seek the Lord in his strength, seek his face continually. First Chronicles 22, 19, encourage you to memorize that. Now seek the Lord in his strength and seek his face continually. David said, my soul followeth hard after thee. Psalm 63, 8. David said, my heart is fixed, O God. My heart is fixed. He never moved his gaze off of the Lord for the most part. That's Psalm 57, 7. I encourage you to write these down on index cards with the reference and memorize them. They will change your life. In fact, I want to encourage you to look up the word seek and seeking God and seeking the face of the Lord in the concordance. Look up every scripture and write them all down on an index card and cross-reference them in your Bible and build that wealth of the continuity of truth throughout the scripture and as it spans over the generations and the centuries and among those who announced and realized their great poverty of self and in self and their great need for the Lord. You know, I like to say it this way. There are no real great men of God. There's a great God of sinful men. Some people say, I believe in prayer. I understand what they're saying, but I don't believe in prayer. I believe in God. Jesus said, have faith in God. Prayer is just that medium by which you're, what is prayer? It's communing with God. Well, many forms of prayer, supplication is one of them. It is humbly requesting, you know, let your supplications be known unto him, Philippians 4, 4 through 6. Supplication simply means humble request. That's one form of prayer. Asking according to his will. It's good. That's First John 5, 14 to 15. That's good. And I believe that the main thing about prayer is all of those other things. But number one, it's communion with God. That I may know him. 
the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his suffering, everything in our worship is about knowing him. Jesus set that down as a foundation. He said, when he was praying to the Father, he said, this is life eternal. This is the whole reason for it, that they might know thee, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom he hath sent. John 17, 3. That's another memory verse and an absolute essential foundational stone in the life of every believer. Now, he says, Psalm 5, 3, my voice shalt thou hear in the morning, O Lord, in the morning will I direct my prayer unto thee, and will look up, will look up, praise God. Now, Oswald Chambers said this, I'm going to quote Oswald Chambers, he wrote, uh, he was a pastor of old, and he wrote a devotional book called My Utmost for His Highest. He said, unless in the first waking moment of the day, you learn to fling the door wide back and let God in. You will work on a wrong level all day, but swing the door wide open and pray to your father in secret, and every public thing will be stamped with the presence of God. Unquote. I don't know about you, man. That is an absolute beautiful quote because it takes in so much scripture. Matthew 6, 6 says, Jesus taught us this. He says, but thou, when thou prayest. Now, let me stop for a minute, guys. This is not my preference. This is not a man's preference. This is not a religious preference. This is just Bible. This is basic one-on-one Bible. If you don't have a life of prayer and a prayer life, you don't have anything with God. You have said, I don't mean to be rude, but too bad for all of us. Get our toes out there. Let them be squashed and let the truth set us free as we embrace it and obey it. You see, if we don't have a life of prayer, we're not seeking God. We're full of self. You can't be full of Christ and full of self at the same time. Now, every one of us, without a split second, can enumerate temptations that we have every day, sins that we've committed. Now, why do I commit sin? Because I'm not full of Christ. That's it. That sin might be inward. That's where it always starts, right? Then when lust has conceived inside of you, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, does what? Bringeth forth death. That's it. And the wages of sin is what? Death. What does that do? That molests, that muddies the water of your relationship with God. I don't like that. And that's that desolation. That was the Lord that you quoted that, that I believe brought that out. I read right over that. I didn't see it. That's why it's so important to dwell, let the word of Christ dwell among us. That's not only individual, that's corporately. That's why the early church got together every day, every night, house to house every day, and did four things. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, the word of God, and in breaking of bread. They ate together, had communion together, and they prayed together, and they koinonia fellowship together. Those four things. Acts 2.42. We need Christ, and we need his body. They're essential. So, my voice shalt thou hear in the morning. O Lord, in the morning will I direct my prayer unto thee and will look up. How many people know the Bible says to look up? And the way you look up is that you literally look up and set your affection on things above, not on the things of the earth. That's a command. Colossians 3, 1 through 3 and 4. And that's all in light of his soon return. When he shall appear, then we'll be ready if we're doing what? We're setting our affection on things above. We're counting ourselves to be dead. Let's go over there. Colossians 3. I want to start reading in verse 1. Aaron, are you there, brother? If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, 
not on things on the earth, for ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ and God. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. Mortify, therefore, your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness, which is idolatry. For which things sake the wrath of God cometh on the children of disobedience, in the which ye also walked some time when ye lived in them. But now ye also put off all these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication, out of your mouth. Lie not one to another, seeing that ye have put off the old man with his deeds, and have put on the new man which is renewed in the knowledge after the image of him that created him, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision nor uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bond nor free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another, and forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. And above all these things put on charity, which is the bond of perfectness. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts. To the which also ye are called in one body, and be ye thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another, in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatsoever ye do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by him. So we are to what? If we be risen with Christ, he's talking to the, those that have been born again. It's only one kind of Christian, the born again. You might have been born and raised in a religion, but you're on your way to spend eternity without Christ in hell. If you haven't been born again, religion is not enough. God didn't so love the world that he gave religion. He so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. There's only one nail-scored risen Savior. His name is Jesus Christ, and he's the only way to God. He is the door by which every man who will go to heaven must enter, or he will not go to heaven. If our identity is in anything else but in the person of Jesus Christ, remember, verse 11 said, Christ is all. It's all about Jesus. The kingdom of God is not about your religion. It's not about your ministry. It's not about your little pastor. It's not about this fool either. It's about Jesus Christ. Paul, the apostle, said, we preach not ourselves. We don't build up our names or our ministries, our stupid religion. And I don't apologize. All religion is stupid. Jesus had the, one of his greatest enemies was religion. Jesus did not come to start a religion. And religion, Jesus Christ is not a religion. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And it's only through the person of Jesus Christ that anyone can be saved. You don't want to know Jesus. You don't love his word. You don't want to get to know him. You will not know him and you will not go to heaven. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man, no pastor, no pope, no priest, no man, no religionist shall come to the Father but by me. The Bible says in 1 Timothy 2, 5, there is one God. And how many mediators? One mediator between God and man. And that's Christ Jesus, right? Now, anybody got a calculator? You want to help me figure that out? There's how many? It mentions two numbers. Actually, one number twice. There's how many gods? One. How many mediators? One. That means Mary's not the way. By the way, did she walk on water? Who did she raise from the dead? Who did she heal? Whose sins did she die for? Well, and anything in addition to Christ is what? An idol, right? And what will idolatry do to you? Damn you. So we just read that in this passage as we read also in Ephesians 5. The first commandment, law first mentioned again, the first commandment says what? Exodus 20 verse 3, thou shalt have no other gods before me. 
No means none. It's the root word for none and nothing. No. And how do we put other guys before us in the evangelical world? We listen to doctrines. Anson was telling me yesterday how somebody was talking. Anyway, encouraged him to get in a certain passage. And Anson said, you know what? I'm going to put aside anything I've learned of men, and I'm getting in that passage. Regardless of the subject, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm just talking about he got in the word to truly draw nigh to God and pray, God, what are you saying here? I'm not going to follow the line of other men. I don't care how many years and centuries they act like they've... uh, you got all of this orthodoxy figured out and all. What does God say? And what does his word say? What do his apostles and prophets say? They have authority. I say this often and I'll say it again. I'm not impressed with so-called big name pillars, whether they agree with what I see in the scripture or not in the past. I don't believe in these church fathers. The only church fathers we need are the apostle Paul, the apostle Peter, the apostle John, Jude, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, L-O, etc. The writers of Holy Scripture, Moses and David and Jeremiah and Isaiah. That's authority, man. God's divine authority was invested in these 40 or so men who he inspired, these holy men of God who wrote the Holy Scriptures. I don't know about you, man. That's the horse's mouth, as the saying goes. That's God speaking to us. The Scripture cannot be broken, Jesus said, John 10, 35. Jesus said, search the Scriptures. They are they which testify of me. The Scriptures reveal Christ. Amen. 11. But I certify you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached of me is not after man, for I neither received it of man, neither was I taught it, but by the revelation of Jesus Christ. Thank you, sir. That was Galatians 1.11. So we see here that the Lord says that if we be risen with Christ in Colossians 3.1, that we're to seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Now, Jesus is on the right hand of God. What's he doing? He ever liveth to make intercession for us, right? Hebrews 7, verse 24 and 25, what he died to purchase, he lives to provide. What Jesus died to purchase with his own blood, all of the blessings of God are wrapped up in Jesus and what his blood procured for the church. What he died to purchase, he lives to provide, to ever live to make intercession for you and I, not just now on earth, but all the way in and through eternity. I love Psalm 73, I believe it's verse 24, 25. It says, he will guide me with his counsel and afterwards receive me to his glory. I want you to memorize that verse and get a picture. Picture what God's saying there. Psalm 73, I believe it's verse 24, 25. God is going to guide our feet by his word, because his word is a lamp to our feet and a lamp to our path. Down that narrow road, Marcus, that leads to life, where the Son of God is waiting at the end with his arms open wide to say, Well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter thou into the joy of the Lord. But only those that end up all the way down the narrow road that leads to life. Few there be that find it. The Paul Bunyan wrote a book in prison. It was called, it was an allegory, Pilgrim's Progress. And uh, there's like a video on that. It's fabulous. And But anyway, get the picture of what we read there in Psalm 73. Anybody got that? Verse 24, 25. Thou shalt guide me with thy counsel and afterwards he's going to receive us to his glory. He's going to receive us to his glory. He's going to receive us into eternal glory as we allow him to guide us with his counsel, not the counsel of men, not the counsel of the ungodly who pose as men of God, right? We don't want to stand in the counsel of the ungodly, but in the law of the Lord, Psalm 1, we want to meditate day and night. 
We don't want to adhere to Brother Todd's twist on Scripture or anybody else's. We want to hear God's voice for ourselves and learn the Holy Scriptures and learn to walk with God and study to show ourselves approved unto God. Ourselves, that's individual. Unto God, a workman, it takes work. Thou shalt guide me with thy counsel and afterward receive me to glory. 24, 73, 25. Whom have I in heaven but thee? And there is none upon earth that I desire beside thee. None on earth that I desire beside thee. Nobody's more important. Nobody's more glorious. Nobody's more beautiful than Jesus. You like that? Psalm 73, 24, and 25. I want to encourage you to get out an index card and write that down with the reference and begin to meditate on that beautiful passage. And God's going to speak to you through it. So in verse 1 of Colossians 3, If ye then be risen with Christ, ye dead with Christ and risen up by his power and by his righteousness, having been redeemed by him, seek those things which are above. Don't be caught up with the things on this earth, the seedfulness of riches, the lust of other things, and the cares of this life, but would choke out the word, Mark 4, 17 through 19, and cause it to be unfruitful. That's the picture of the person who began in the word, but did not continue. They allowed the cares of this life, the deceitfulness of riches, and the lust of other things to choke out the word, and they fell away. That's a consistent scripture teaching throughout scripture. Scripture, somewhat quoting Mark 4, 17 through 19. So set your affection on things above, but where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Now, that's personally something I like to say when I'm praying every day is, is lift my hands up and say, Lord, I set my affection on things above, not on the things of this earth, Lord. And where you're seated on the right hand of the Father, make an intercession for me. I love you, G. You know, things like this, this just just personal. But adopting Scripture into your prayer life, which first and foremost is all about knowing him, right? Everything in our lives and in this salvation, this so great salvation that he wrought for us with his own blood is about knowing God, including prayer. Prayer isn't just about asking, although he says ask. He wants you to ask. And even says that you have not because you ask not. Hello. And ask and you shall receive that your joy may be full. So we take nothing away from supplication. That's a biblical one part of praying. But the primary part, I believe, is about knowing him and communing with him and setting your affection on him. See, God doesn't want just our lip service. He wants the affection of our heart. I love Jeremiah 30, verse 21, I think it is, or 31, 20. Or he talks about engage. Who is this that engaged his heart to seek the Lord? Engaged his heart to seek the Lord. Is our heart engaged to seek the Lord? That is a big question. Or are we just running through some kind of form of godless or some kind of religious curriculum? We in a class or going to church on Sundays, 30, verse 21, I believe it is. Jeremiah 30, verse 21. Anybody got that or you want me to read it? I will read that. He shall, okay. For who is that? For who is this that engaged his heart to approach unto me? Who is it that, and God's asking us this, who is it that will engage his heart to approach unto me, to come unto me? The eyes of the Lord do what? They go to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong in the behalf of those whose heart is perfect before him. Now, I got good news for you, if you like me. You've not lived a sinlessly perfect life since you've been saved. Notice whose heart is perfect toward me. I'd rather be the person like the thief on the cross Anson, who finishes 
in the righteousness of God than a person who ran all the way to the end and quit. If it weren't possible to grow weary in well-doing, why are we warned about that? Be not weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. Galatians chapter 6, verse 9. Praise God. Verse 2 of Colossians 3. Set your affection on things above. This is something you got to deliberately do. First Chronicles 22, 19 says, Now set your heart and your soul to seek the Lord your God. Now set your heart and your soul to seek the Lord your God. Now you can look up that Hebrew word on set, if you will, First Chronicles twenty two nineteen. I believe it's kind of like the picture of a thermostat. If you want your house to be at sixty eight degrees, what do you do? You set the thermostat on sixty eight so that the air conditioned unit works to reach that goal. Right? Well, it's the same thing here. You decide that you're going to serve God in that moment, and you decide I'm setting my affection on things above. I am putting God first. I'm going to set. We can read right over that word, not really get it. We got to set that thermostat of of our hearts that we're going to seek the Lord. He comes first. We're going to seek his face. We're going to put him first in everything. The first waking moments as he taught throughout his word. We're going to dial up first love living. Like Anson quoted earlier from Revelation 2, 4, and 5, they had left their first love. Jesus said he had something against them, and he's got something against some of us that are listening because we've left our first love. And he says we're to repent, just like he told the Ephesians in Revelation chapter 2, verse 1 through 7, that they had some other things going for them. But in the big picture, that it was all just a form or formula of godliness because they had left their first love. All of our worship, so-called worship, is in vain if we've left loving Jesus with the affection of our hearts. Now, did I throw that in there? Or is that what the Bible says right there in verse 2 of Colossians 3? Set your affection. Set your what? Set your affection, the affections of your heart on things above. Who's above? Jesus. We just read in verse 1 that he is sitting on the right hand of the Father. So what picture do you have? I got a picture of the Father and the Son sitting next to him. See if you can look up that Hebrew word for set. Now, the verse I quoted earlier to correct myself, I gave the wrong reference. It's 1 Chronicles 16, 11. Now, seek the Lord in his strength. Seek his face continually. The word set and 1 Chronicles 22, 19 is a primitive root to give, use with great latitude of application, and apply, appoint, ascribe, assign, avenge, bestow, bring, cast, cause, charge, come, commit, consider, count, cry, deliver, direct, distribute. So set your heart and your soul to seek the Lord your God. First Chronicles 22, 19. Now the Greek word for set in Colossians chapter 3, verse 2, it's set your affection. The Greek word there is proneo, to exercise the mind, entertain or have a sentiment or opinion by implication to be mentally disposed more or less earnestly in a certain direction, intensive to interest oneself in with concern or obedience. Set the affection on, all right, to regard, to savor, and to think upon. To set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. The note in this study Bible, it's Life in the Spirit study Bible, speaking of verse 2 in Colossians 3, set your affection on things above, reads this way. It says, because our lives are hidden with Christ in heaven, we must set our minds on and let our attitudes be determined 
determined by the things above. We must value, judge, view, and consider everything from an eternal and heavenly perspective. Our goals, pursuits, and ambitions should be to seek spiritual things, resist sin, and put on the character of Christ. Spiritual graces, power, experiences, and blessings are all with Christ in heaven. He bestows those things upon all who sincerely ask, diligently seek, and persistently knock. Unquote. All right, verse 3. For you are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. For you are dead. What are you? You're dead. You're dead with Christ, Romans 6. And you're raised up with him, but only if you're dead with him. Not only positionally, this is where we get it wrong in the evangelical church world, we're not only positionally dead and buried with Christ and raised up. We must be practically or experientially every day dead with Christ, buried with Christ, and raised again. That's the gospel in our daily life. As we are to always bear about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our mortal body. When is that? The day we were saved? No, that was then and now. We've got to walk this out. This is the gospel in our daily life, which we wrote about extensively from the scriptures in the, the two books on safeguard yoursoul.com. They're available called I Die Daily, which is a scripture, and Raised Up. So, we're dead and our life is hid with Christ and God. In fact, Paul said that he had to keep his body under, crucified. Not all, he didn't say he was crucified. He said, I am crucified with Christ presently, right? He also, that's Galatians 2.20. Also, in 2 Corinthians 1.9, the Apostle Paul said, we sentence ourselves to death so that we won't trust in ourselves, but in the living God. Now, that goes along with being not wise in our own conceits or leaning to our own understanding or to anybody else's understanding, but in all of our ways acknowledging God, living by faith in what we read, what we see, and he makes alive to us in his word. For you are dead and your life is hid with Christ in God. Now notice this. Be easy to read this and just somehow disconnect it from these first three verses. Listen to verse four. What's verse four say? Colossians 3. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. So, now who's he talking about? There are conditions to appearing with him in glory. Now, doesn't the Bible talk about his appearing over and over and over? In fact, it talks about, quote, those who love his appearing, right? What is that? First Timothy 4, 8 or something. Whatever. Those, quote, those that love his appearing. Do you love his appearing? If you're loving his appearing, if you love his appearing, and you're looking for the return of our Lord Jesus Christ, who promised us that he was coming like a thief in the night, and many who will once say will not be like the foolish virgins, then what are you doing if you love his appearing? What are you doing if you want to be ready when he returns? Back up to verse 1. You're dead, right? You're risen with Christ. You're seeking those things which are above, where Christ sits on the right hand of God. You're setting your affection on things above, not on things of the earth. You are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in, in God. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. Now, who's ye? Those that are walking with Christ, not those that have forsaken him. The Bible says if we deny him, he also will deny us, Second Timothy 2.12. If we deny him... He also will deny us. Walking and watching. He's coming back for those. What's it say in Hebrews 9, 28? He's coming back for those that are looking for him, right? Who's he coming back for? There's conditions for being ready for the return of Christ. Don't let anybody fool you. In fact, I will say this. At the heart of any gospel that leaves out anybody's preaching or writing or anything, leaves out being ready. First of all, the return of Christ, which is said to be the most prevalent doctrine in all the New Testament, not only 
the fact that he's going to return, but all of the scriptures about being ready for his return. Anybody who leaves that out of his preaching is being motivated by the arch enemy of Jesus Christ himself. Hebrews 9:28. So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. So unto them, read that again. Hebrews 9:28. So Christ once was offered to bear the sins of many, and unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. Who's he going to appear to? Unto them that look for him. This is a condition. The promise of going with Jesus when he returns soon is that you've got to be looking for him. Now, how are you going to look for him? Well, we just read in Colossians 3 that we're setting our affection on things above, not on things of the earth. We're watching and praying. Jesus said often, over and over in his ministry, and his teachings, we say we love Jesus. Do we love his teachings? Do we hear his teachings? Are we internalizing them? Are we doing them? If we love Jesus, we all. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. It proves that you love him. If you're not keeping his commandments because you don't love him, you don't have any interest in him. You might want that ticket to heaven, but that's not how it's going to help. That's not how it's going to work. Jesus said there are going to be many that say to me, Lord, Lord, in that day, you know, on judgment day, I did many wonderful works. I participated, Lord. I, you know, dwelt among your brethren. I cast out, even cast out devils. I did all these wonderful things, but he's going to say to them, depart from me, you work of iniquity. I never knew you. Why? They didn't want to sit there. They didn't want to get to know Christ. They were all about living for themselves. They're like we see described in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1 through 7. Men will be lovers of their own selves and lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God, all in the midst of having a form or a formula of godliness, but denying the power thereof, the power, the authority of Jesus Christ. Let's look at 1 John chapter 3. I love this chapter and this passage, I should say. 1 John chapter 3. Now somebody said, well, I guess you love everything. You say you love I yeah, yeah, do you? First John 2, 24. Here we go. Let that therefore abide in you, which ye have heard from the beginning. If that which ye have heard from the beginning shall remain in you, ye also shall continue in the Son and in the Father. If that let which that, you, let that therefore abide, remain in you, which ye have heard from the beginning, the word of God, the but we're born again by, not the incorruptible, not the corruptible, the incorruptible seed. If yeah, that... Yeah, yeah which ye have heard from the beginning shall remain in you, ye also shall continue in the Son and in the Father. He that has the Son hath life. If that which ye have heard from the beginning shall remain in you, ye shall continue in the Son and in the Father. What does that imply? That implies that if you do not continue or remain in the gospel, in the truth, then you don't have the Son or the Father. 1 Corinthians 15, 2, real quick. We're going to read a couple of verses that coincide with this. Let that, I'm going to read our passage, our main passage here one more time before we read a couple of other verses, beloved. Listen, 1 John 2, 24. Let that therefore abide, that means remain in you, which ye have heard from the beginning. That's the truth, the gospel truth. If that which ye have heard from the beginning shall remain in you. Then, I add, ye also shall continue in the Son and in the Father. That means if you don't continue in the truth that you began in and that you heard from the beginning, you do not remain in or continue in the Son and in the Father. First Corinthians 15.2 says, By which also ye are saved, if you keep in memory what I have preached unto you, unless ye have believed in vain. So if you don't keep in memory the gospel that Paul preached, which as 
we read earlier in Galatians 1.11 came from Christ, then you will not remain in him. Well, all your initial faith is in vain. Now, you can couple that together with Ezekiel. 33, 12 and 13, which speak of the righteousness of the righteous not being remembered in the day that he departs from God and goes back into sin. Now, another verse that goes with this is obviously John 15, 1 through 7, about abiding in Christ. If you don't abide in him, you'll be cast forth as a branch and burned. You'll ultimately be thrown into hell. You that have begun in him, but didn't abide in him. John 15, 1 through 7. Now, also, 2 John, verse 9, says, quote, Whosoever transgresses, speaking of a spirit, the spiritual state of an individual, talking to the body of Christ here, whosoever transgresseth and abideth not, does not remain in the doctrine of Christ, hath not God. Wow. You lose your relationship with God if you don't abide in the doctrine of Christ. There's so many movements and so many ministries that do everything in the world to shun and make an evil thing out of doctrine. I believe it's 51 times the word doctrine appears in the Bible. Doctrine is extremely important. We read here in 2 John 9 that if you go back into sin and abide not in the doctrine of Christ, you don't have God. I see what you're saying there. But they adhere to their own doctrines of men instead of the doctrine of Christ. I believe is what I got out of that. That's good. We do have the phrase doctrines of men, Jesus spoke of, Mark 7, Matthew 15. That's good. That's very good. People put aside their the doctrine of God for their for their own doctrines of men, Jesus said. That's what religionists do. And some people listening might think, well, I'm a spirit-filled Christian, man. I'm a part of this movement or that movement or whatever, and be full of the doctrines of men. You see, every generation thinks they got something new, fresh, and of God. First Timothy 4, verse 1. Now, Third John 9, whosoever transgresseth and abideth not or remains not in the doctrine of Christ, hath not God, he that abideth or remaineth in the doctrine of Christ, he hath both the Father and the Son. So our security is continuing in the way of the Lord, which is described in his word, which is the doctrine of Christ. Then we have the Father and the Son. If you're not continuing in the doctrines of Christ, you're not learning of the Lord Jesus Christ straight from his word, then you don't have the Father or the Son. You don't have any security. It doesn't matter how much you think you have security. You don't. There's a lot of people that'll run out and they're going to buy this fad book called, this ridiculous book called The Shack. Absolutely. You know, if you love The Shack, I can tell you right now, you're not saved because that book blasphemes God. It is a pagan religionist book. The guy that wrote it is a universalist. He believes in universal reconciliation. He believes everybody's going to be saved. That means Christ came in vain. He's anti-Christ. That's just getting started. The remnant that will be in heaven with Jesus are being guided by his counsel, like we read in Psalm 73, 24. Not by the shack, by his counsel. By God's counsel. We don't walk, the true remnant is not to walk in the counsel of the ungodly. The man who wrote the shack is a godless, filthy, wicked wolf. And listen to what we read in verse 7 here in Second John. We're going to get back to our passage in First John, but we're having fun right here, right now. We're in the Word. You got to keep on your feet with your mind if you're going to keep up, because we get around in the Bible normally as God leads us, hopefully. But Second John, verse 7, what's that? Many deceivers. Oh, wait, 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 wait. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Read that 
again, I, I didn't know there were many deceivers. I thought there were just a few here or there. Many deceivers are entered into the world. Oh, wow. Thing that we see throughout scripture that many false prophets, Jesus said in John, many antichrists. So many deceivers, I want you to underline that word many in your Bible. Many what? Many deceivers, deceivers are entered into the world who confess not that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. Look to yourselves that we lose not those things which we have wrought. This is what? A deceiver and an antichrist. The word deceiver appears twice in that very verse. Are there deceivers? Are there antichrist? Is this something we're making up? No, this is what John. the Bible says. This is the Apostle John. And, and you know, in 1 John 2.18, he said, as Marcus quoted, there are many antichrists entered into the world already. That was 2,000 years ago. Now, how many do you think we got now? We are so inundated. You think there's a devil behind, a deceiver behind every bush? You're probably right. Second Timothy. Breach uh, 13 says what? Evil men and deceivers. As the end nears, evil men. See, we got to get a grip on ourselves and look at this. What's going on? We live in the last hour. This is 2,000 years after the New Testament was written. When the Apostle John, who walked with Jesus, said that there were many antichrists in his day that are already in the world. Now he's telling us that many deceivers have entered into the world. Many deceivers are entered into the world who confess not that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist, like the man who wrote the shack. He denies that you have to repent and receive Jesus. He's a universal reconciliationist, a universalist. He believes everybody is going to ultimately be saved. And there are many variations of that foolish, total heresy. That God's going to take them out of hell and ultimately save them. That's ridiculous. Jesus himself said, if you don't believe this, you're Antichrist, in Mark 7, 42 through 49, that the fire will never be quenched. It's eternal. The suffering of the wicked, all who die outside of Christ, is going to be for eternity. Signed, sealed, delivered. The Bible says it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this, the judgment. Now, pick up in verse 8 of 2 John. Look to yourself. Oh, wait a minute. Look to yourself. That's personal responsibility, right? Pastor can't walk with God for you. The evangelist can't. The guy that wrote the book you like can't. You got to look to your own self. Or you will not be a part of the remnant. Start over again. Look to yourselves that we lose not those things which we have wrought, but that we receive a full reward. Whosoever transgresseth and abideth not in the doctrine of Christ hath not God. He that abideth in the doctrine of Christ, he hath both the Father and the Son. If there come any unto you, and bring not this doctrine, receive him not into your house, neither bid him God's speed. For he that biddeth him God's speed is a partaker of his evil deeds. Having many things to write unto you, I would not write the, with paper and ink, but I trust to come unto you, and speak face to face, that our joy may be full. The children of thy elect sister greet thee. In this brief letter, it's only what? 13 verses. Very potent. The word truth appears five times in the first four verses. And then we see doctrine appear over and over in the passage we just read beginning in verse 7. You see, in verse 7 through 12 that we just read, Christians are held accountable for proclaiming the whole will of God and warning others of false teachings and those responsible for them. Notice in verse 10, as Aaron read, if there come any unto you and bring not this doctrine, receive him not into your house. They come unto you. Now, the obvious people on that is going to be Mormons, Jehovah. 
witnesses. He said, don't receive them in your home. That means don't even try to get in an argument with them and debate them in your home. Don't let them just obey God. Lean out to your own and say, don't let them in your house. Don't wish them God. Neither bid him Godspeed. Don't bless them because then you're endorsing and blessing something God says is cursed. And if you help the ungodly, the Bible says the wrath of God is upon you. Second Chronicles 19 verse 2. You know, sometimes people think that they're going to be nicer than Jesus, that they're going to be nice to people and help people that are doing ungodly things or teaching things that are ungodly. And God says the wrath of God is upon them. It doesn't matter how sincere they are. They're sincerely deceived because they're not taking heed according to the word of God. They're making excuse and they're leaning to their own understanding and they're being wise in their own conceit. The bottom line is that they're doing these things because they're full of pride. They want to be liked of men. They don't want to rock the boat. They don't want to receive the persecution that comes from holding to the absolute truth of God's word and to denying yourself, taking up the cross and following Jesus and identifying only with Jesus Christ and his word. We'll make a fair throw in the flesh like Galatians 5.12, Galatians 6.12 talks about. And then verse 11, 2 John says, For he that biddeth him Godspeed is partaker of his evil deeds. In other words, you're guilty just like him. If you bless a false prophet or a false teacher, doesn't matter if you knew it or not, you're cursed just like he is. Now, we're going to pop back on over to 1 John. We began to read in verse 24. Let's pick it up in verse 24, bro. 1 John 2, 24. Let that therefore abide in you, which ye have heard from the beginning. If that which ye have heard from the beginning shall remain in you, ye also shall continue in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he hath promised us, even eternal life. These things I have written unto you concerning them. Life here or not? Yes. Eternal life. You're going to remain in Christ, who is eternal life, First John 5.20. Or if you don't remain and abide in Christ and what you heard, the doctrine, then you don't have eternal life. That's clearly conveyed here, verse 24 and 25. These things I have written unto you concerning them that to seduce you. Go ahead and talk about that. Them that seduce, are there people out there trying to seduce you into false seducing spirits and doctrines, doctrines of, of devils? devils? Right. First Timothy four one. Right. Right. But the anointing which ye have received of him abideth in you, and ye need not that any man teach you, but as the same anointing teacheth you of all things, and is truth. Notice verse 26. These things have I written unto you. Why did John write these things under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost? Concerning them that seduce you. Remember Paul said that he warned about deceivers and literally listed them in Philippians 3, 1 through 3. Put it in writing to warn not only those he was writing to directly, but the whole New Testament church for the whole New Testament period. He said that he wanted to keep them safe. That word appears in Philippians 3.1. He wanted to keep them safe from these deceivers. And this is the same spirit of Christ ministering through another of his apostles, the apostle John, that says, these things have I written unto you. Why did John write this letter? 1 John 2.26, these things have I written unto you concerning them that seduce you. If you don't think there are people out there that lie in wait to deceive you, Ephesians 4.14, I believe it is, then you are utterly gullible deceived and blinded by the devil. As Marcus says, you're already deceived. These things have I written unto you concerning them that seduce you. That word appears throughout the New Testament. Aaron quoted it. First Timothy 4.1 speaks of seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. Seducing, what do they try to do? They try to get you to believe a doctrine that's contrary to the doctrine of Christ, the doctrine of devils, which ultimately is going to destroy your life 
bring you to eternal damnation. Also, 2 Timothy 3.13, evil men and what? Seducers shall wax worse and worse. So we are inundated. If you do not believe that the church world is inundated, these scriptures alone that we've read tonight, that the church world is inundated with wolves and seducers and doctrines of devils and wolves and deceivers, then you don't believe the word of God, my friend. And listen, we're not trying to sell books, but we are trying to disseminate the truth. The book, Deceivers and False Prophets Among Us, goes through a myriad, a mountain of scriptures from the Old and New Testament concerning this subject. I highly recommend it to you. It's in ebook form and it's in hardcover and softcover at safeguardyoursoul.com. There are so many scriptures. I defy you to find a Christian book that has more scripture in it. I believe it's going to richly bless your life as it has so many already and open your eyes, eyes of your spirit and your heart and your ears to be able to discern between that with that which is truly of God and that which truly is not of God. Ezekiel 44, 23 says that the true disciples of Christ are going to teach my people, God's people, to discern between the holy and between the and the profane and the light and the darkness. So we are in verse 26 of First John 2. These things I have written unto you concerning them that seduce you. But the anointing which ye have received of him abideth in you, and ye need not that any man teach you. But as the same anointing teacheth you of all things, and is truth, and is no lie, and even as it hath taught you, ye shall abide in him. Notice the personal responsibility and the individual priesthood of the believer we see here. But the anointing, that's a biblical word. I'm not ashamed to use that. I know it's been misused. 1 Corinthians one twenty one is another good verse on the anointing too. 1 Corinthians one twenty one. It, it appears several times, a few times here in the, in the New Testament. In verse 20, it appears. I believe it's verse 20. Well, the unction. But you have an unction from the Holy One and you know all things. Amen. That's a great a smearing, an oil that's put on you, on your head. That's the figurative of the Holy Ghost, the third person of the Godhead, the, the divine person of the Holy Ghost. So, but the anointing which ye have received of him abideth in you. Romans 8, 9 tells us if any man doesn't have the Holy Spirit, he is none of Christ. So we're talking about every individual believer here, individual believers, not some elite class of leaders that parade themselves as those who are truly God's anointed. That's ridiculous. God's anointed according to the biblical New Testament definition, is every single believer, because every believer has the Holy Ghost in them. But the anointing which ye have received of him came from God, not a man, abideth, remains in you, and ye need not that any man teach you, but as the same anointing teacheth you of all things, and is truth, and is no lie, and even as it hath taught you, ye shall abide in So the ultimate person that teaches us is God, the Holy Ghost, through the scriptures that he gave us. The Holy Spirit gave us the Holy Scriptures. Jesus promised that the comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, would lead us into all truth and would teach us. John 14, 26 and 16, 13. Now, all right, I was going to look at, before we go on there, 1 Corinthians 1, 21. I was going to read that. I hadn't read that one in a while and had that cross-reference. 2 Corinthians 1, 21. What does that say, Now he which establishes us with you in Christ and hath anointed us is God. Read that again. Now he which establisheth 
us with you in Christ and hath anointed us is God. That's what the Bible says. Second Corinthians one twenty one. Now he which right before that, he says, for all the promises of God in him, in Christ are yea and in him, amen, unto the glory of God by us. Now he which established us with you is Christ. You were one body, Paul saying, and hath anointed us is God. God has anointed all of his children. When the presence of the Holy Ghost is in us, then we are anointed of God. We are the anointed of God. So don't let any man lord it over you, these wolves of the word of faith movement who call themselves the anointed ones and feign to be this elite class of apostles or totally false prophets. And they stay, they misuse in scripture they grab from the Old Testament about touch not mine anointed. That scripture still stands, but it doesn't just apply. It doesn't apply to them at all because they're totally false. They're not the anointing of God. They're not even saved. That applies to every one of God's true children. That's who the anointed are. And we don't need that any man teach us. Does that mean we don't fellowship and have apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers in the body of Christ? No, that's not what that means. But ultimately, ultimately, we receive the truth of God ourselves through his word. We study to show our own selves approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. There's going to be a lot of people on Judgment Day, guys, that are going to be ashamed because they didn't rightly divide the word of truth and they allowed themselves to be misled by some other man's line through Scripture where he picked verses here and there and lifting them out of their context and misled them. Paul said there are many which corrupt the word of God. 2 Corinthians 2, 17. Now, write down from what we just read in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 24 says what? Not for that we have dominion over your faith, but are helpers of your joy, for by faith you stand. By faith in God you stand. We don't have dominion over your faith. The apostle Paul said, now if any man had the right, if you will, to rule over other men, it would be probably the greatest Christian ever lived, the apostle Paul. But he said, we don't have dominion over your faith. We're helpers of your joy. Man, we're here to serve you, to prefer you above ourselves. We're here to be the wind underneath your wings as we pray for you and propel you on in Christ. Praise God. It's not about us. It's not about our little stupid ministry or our website or our books or some movement that we're a part of. It's about the nail-scarred risen Savior. And if we don't see that, we're in trouble. We're blinded. We're already deceived, as Marcus said earlier. Now, we're picking up in verse 28 of 1 John 2. And now, little children, abide in him, that when he shall appear, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. What constitutes not being ashamed before him at his coming? Abiding in him, abiding in the doctrine of Christ, continuing in Christ. Jesus said, he that is of God hears God's words. Ye therefore hear them not, because you're not of God. Speaking of doctrine, John 8, 47. I want you to memorize that verse. Please don't let the, the clock strike midnight before you've memorized the words of the Lord Jesus Christ in John eight forty seven. He that is of God heareth God's words. Think about it. If you're of God, it's proved because you hear God's words. Don't tell me you're of God if somebody pulls out a Bible and wants to read some scripture with you and you run from the light. Oh, brother, we don't need to do that. You know how many pastors I've had do that? They don't want the word of God. Through the years, I've been like, I'm not trying to be rude. I'm pretty graceful about it. If you you know me in person. I'm not trying to shove anything down anybody's throat. But there's a time, I'm not trying to pat myself on the back there either, but you know, get that Bible open. Let's just see what God said. Because what you say, Pastor, what I think doesn't matter. We got to be dead to self. When you're dead to self, you don't have any agenda. You don't have any doctrine of your. Yeah, let God be true and every man a liar. Romans chapter three verse four. Right, shoes involved in their seminary 
teachings or education. You know, I've been to seminary. I've learned it all. You can't teach me anything, brother. I don't need you to tell me anything about the word. I know it all. And that is a good point. And that's a modern day Pharisee right there. Now little children, John, he's, uh, he's calling us little children. 228, and now little children. Oh, wait a minute. 228, Jesus said, except you be converted and become as little children, you shall not enter into the kingdom of God. Wow, that's good. I never tied that together. Very good. So now, verse 28, 1 John 2, and now little children. Wow. Humility, which is the antithesis of the scenario that Marcus so accurately conveyed there. We see that a lot. They had a class with a girl the other day that was uh, quoting what she learned in her stupid seminary class and no scripture was anywhere in her dissertation. And I interrupted her. I said, what does that have to do with anything? What does the Bible say? I don't want to hear what you learned in seminary class. I said, you need to denounce that degree in that school and cut it off because you'll never grow at all and you'll never be right with God until you do. You have no ministry outside of submitting to God himself and to his word and not the doctrines of men, of foolish men. And we we don't even know these things are the doctrines of men because we refuse to get in the Word of God ourselves, And we pay literally hundreds of thousands of dollars to go to this stupid school that we aggrandize. For example, Dallas Theological Cemetery or Seminary. I think I got it right the verse. They literally educate the Word right out of it. They teach them unbelief and they teach them that the NAS, the New American Standard, filthy corruption is the most accurate version of the Bible, which is absolutely ludicrous. That alone tells you that those whoever is running that school is completely deceived. They also have them sign that they believe eternal security before they even can be admitted to the school because they don't want the scriptures contradicting their foolish doctrines of devils and doctrines of men. Now, Jesus said this before we finish this passage in 1 John 2 and 3. Jesus said, but in vain they do worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. Matthew 15, 9. Let's start in verse 7 through 9. Matthew 15. Ye hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you, saying, This people draweth nigh, draweth close unto me with their mouth, and honoreth me with their lips. They got a form of godliness. They got all kinds of religious activity going on, schooling and church services and all this stuff. But their heart is far from me. Now, we talked about that earlier, about engaging your heart to seek the Lord. You know, Jeremiah 30, verse 21, about setting your affection on things above. Their heart is far from me. Heart is far from me. What's it say in verse 9? But in vain they do worship me, teaching for doctrines that commandments of men. So is their worship in God's eyes valid or is it vain? It's in vain. It's absolutely vain. Should they even bother? No. It would be better to do nothing. Right. All right, Jeremiah 12, 2. Thou hast planted them, yea, they have taken root, they grow, yea, they bring forth fruit. Thou art near in their mouth and far from their reins or far from their hearts. These people are doing what they do in vain. All of their religious activities, all of their ministry things. We can say all the right things and be completely disconnected from God in our hearts, according to this passage. The seminary right there in Matthew 59, does it not? But in vain they do worship me. Teaching for doctrines, the commandments of men. That pretty much sums up today's seminary right there. Absolutely well put. If you're listening and you choose to have a childlike heart like Jesus commanded in Matthew 18, 3 and 4, except you be converted, you got to be born again and become as little children. That's a process. If you're willing to humble yourself and you've been to Bible college like myself or seminary, let me encourage you to completely denounce it and disconnect yourself 
yourself, break any soul tie with that institution or the teachings of it, and marry God, marry His Word, love the truth, buy the truth, and sell it not. Titus 1.16, they profess that they know God, but in works they deny Him, being abominable and disobedient and unto every good work reprobate. You can confess to know God and love Him and be reprobate at the same time. You can be one who worships Him with your mouth. You can lead music, sing music, praise God, drive around in your car and listen to tapes and, you know, be involved in Bible college or, or a church or any kind of religious activities. Even read the Bible and pray and be an abomination to God because your heart is not turned to the Lord and you're not fully given over to Him from your inner Man, Now, we're in 1 John chapter 2, and Aaron can pick back up in verse 28, where he pointed out, and now little children. That's really could We could talk about that for a while. God wants us to be humble before him. We don't have humility. We don't recognize how wicked we are and how wonderful and how eternally infinite he is. We're completely perverted and corrupted in our disposition if we aren't becoming like little children, becoming more and more humbly bowed down before his holiness. Now, little children, abide in him, that when he shall appear, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. Oh, man, you see, no, you got to be like a little child if you're going to be ready for his return. There are conditions for being ready for the return of Christ, not just being born again. That's the beginning, and that is essential. But you're going to be found like a wise virgin believer if you've run out of oil, if you've stopped seeking him, if you've stopped getting filled. He's not going to fill you unless you're hungering and thirst after righteousness. Let me just tell you, friend, before we close here as we're winding down, you might as well just go have fun out in the world because you're going to hell anyway. If you're not going to seek God and hunger and thirst after him and to know him better, you're just going through religious rituals. God isn't impressed with that. You know, he looks to the man who is broken and trembles at his word, who's broken and contrite in spirit, according to Isaiah 66, verse 2. Now, let's read it again, verse 28 of 1 John 2. And now, little children, abide in him, that when he shall appear, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. If ye know that he is righteous, ye know that every one that doeth righteousness is born of him. We're going to read the first three verses here also, the third chapter, because this is one passage. Notice it continues the passage. Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Love that verse. I want you to memorize that one. Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Can you believe it? What kind of love he's bestowed upon us, who in ourselves are as righteous, all our righteousness are as filthy rags, that he calls us his very friends, his very sons, the sons of God. Therefore, the world knoweth us not, because it knew him not. Why doesn't the world love us and they hate us? Because they, they don't know the Lord and they don't love him, they hate him. Verse 2, beloved, now are we the sons of God. We already are the sons of God through the blood of Christ. And it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And every man, listen to this, Every man that has this hope, what hope? The hope of his appearing. Did you notice that word keeps appearing? The word appear and appearing all over this passage, all over the New Testament. But we're not even trying to find that word tonight. Marcus and it's every, in every passage we're reading. It's God putting an impression, putting a finger on his truth that we're to love is appearing. I believe that's 1 John 4, 8, if you want to get that one. Every man that has this hope in him purifies himself, even as he is pure. Every man that has the hope of the return of Christ in him is daily purifying himself. 
yourself. That What does that mean? Well, you and I are not sinless perfection in the physical manifested state yet. We are because when we're in Christ and we've returned to him and we're fully one with him, then we are. We have his righteousness and therefore all our sins are washed away. You know, if you've sinned, know this, you weren't worthy in yourself to be saved in the past anyway. Just return to the Lord and accept this gift of his righteousness, which Romans 5 says it is a gift of his righteousness through the precious blood of Jesus. And just forget those things which are behind, as Paul said in Philippians 3, 13 and 14, and reach forth unto those things which are before and press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Verse 3 of 1 John 3 says, Every man that has this hope in him, what hope? The hope of his return and his appearing, purifieth himself even as he is pure. The Bible tells us in Revelation chapter 19, verse 7, that the bride, the true bride of Christ, has made herself ready, is making herself ready. This is a sister scripture to this passage and to this verse, 1 John 3, 3. And every man, notice not most, but all, every man that hath this hope, the hope of the soon return of Christ, could happen before this message is over, purifieth himself even as he is pure. Readiness test. Here's the readiness test. Are you currently being cleaned up? Are you? Are you currently seeking God to cleanse you? I love Psalm 39, 8. He says, deliver me, prayed, from every and all of my transgressions. David cried out again, Psalm 39, 5. Deliver me from all of my transgressions. That's the readiness test. The readiness test. You ready for it? Or according to this passage, here's the readiness test. Are you currently being cleaned up, seeking God for the cleansing of everything that does not please him? Read Psalm 51. Pray over that passage. Read Romans 6. Pray over it. And God will do the work as you submit your life to him. That's how it works. Oh yeah. That's the truth about holiness. It's absolutely commanded. Be ye holy for I am holy. And without holiness, no man is going to see the Lord, Hebrews 12, 14, and 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 15 and 16. The truth of holiness is that it's absolutely necessity. It's essential. You will not be in heaven without it. And yet, it's only God that can do it as you completely submit yourself to him, which includes not only, first of all, beginning with your heart, but also getting the things out of your life that don't bring glory to God. Cutting down, laying an axe to the root of every thorn bush that is growing up and choking out the good word of God, laying aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us, and looking unto Jesus with your whole heart, the author and finisher of our faith, getting rid of the false teachers, throwing away, actually don't throw them away, just tear them up and burn all the false prophets whose books you've bought. This whole passage is talking about the deceivers and those that would seduce you. John is speaking of the ability and responsibility of each believer to discern between true and false teachers. If they're not talking about being pure in light of the return of Christ, that right there tells you they're false. You'll know them by the fruit of their doctrine. They're not preaching the apostolic doctrine. He that doeth righteousness is righteous even as he is righteous. A child is known by what he does, not just what he says. Proverbs chapter 20, verse 11. Also, Proverbs 20, verse 9 says, Who can say, I've made my heart clean? You see, we can't do that on our own, but we're commanded to be holy. So how does that happen? Well, that happens through completely submitting yourself to God, laying down your life. 
and letting him purify you, crying out like David did, that he would create in you a clean heart, that he would renew a right spirit within you, that he would search you and know you and remove every wicked thing from your life. Psalm 51, Psalm 139, verse 23 and 24. Let's pray. I want you to bow your head and your heart, and I want you to pray this from the depth of your being. I want you to say these words out loud as you return to the Lord your God, your maker and your redeemer. I want you to say this out loud. You're praying to God, and from with everything that is within you, I want you to pray these words. Dear Heavenly Father, right this moment, I submit my life to you. I admit right now that I've gone my own way. I've had other gods before you. You said you shall have no other gods before me. Right now, I repent of spiritual idolatry and spiritual adultery. I have alienated my affections away from you, Lord, to the things of this world and to my own things. I sat on my own heart as the king of my own life. But right now, in the name of Jesus Christ, I repent and I return to you, Father. And I ask you to allow Jesus, I beg you to let Jesus sit on the throne of my heart, truly be my first love and to reign in my life. I love you, Jesus. I love you, Father. In the name of Jesus, amen. Well, brothers and sisters, it's been a blessing to spend these moments with you in the Word of God. And remember, there's hundreds of more Christ-centered, scripture-rich, edifying podcasts on safeguardyoursoul.com forward slash audios. There's also a store page with several many books on there for your edification in Christ. They're all scripture-rich and Christ-centered. Also, tens of thousands of saints and sinners are being reached every month, and you're prayers are coveted for the fruitfulness and supply of this outreach. God be praised, by the way, for those who are supporting. And feel free to visit our donate page on the site. And you can use your debit card, PayPal, or Patreon. And you can become a monthly sustaining member if you choose to do so. And a gift of any amount is so appreciated. Part of this outreach is to equip and supply other ministering disciples across our great country and all over the world. And may God be praised that there's fruitfulness happening among his people and through his beloved saints as we know that the return of our Lord Jesus Christ draws nigh. And we say together in the words of Revelation 22, even so, come Lord Jesus. Amen.